Matthew 4, verses 18 to 22. This is the account where Jesus calls his disciples. Now, before we get into this account, I want us to define what is a disciple? What is a disciple? A learner? Yes. I have this definition up here on the uh, screen. You can write this down into your outline. There's a little line there for your definition of disciple. Mathetes, the Greek word, it's a devoted pupil, a learner, a devoted learner, a devoted follower. I added the word devoted to help us understand that being a disciple is just a little more than attending a classroom once or twice a week. Okay, when we think learner or student, we think about school, classroom. This was a little bit more involved. Uh, the New Testament scholar Muller writes this, a man is called a mathetes at this time when he binds himself to someone else to acquire both theoretical and practical life knowledge. It's a full apprenticeship that involves every aspect of life. So to be a devoted follower, devoted learner, pupil. We see this exemplified by the 12 that are called by Christ in the gospel. They weren't called to visit Jesus in the synagogue once or twice a week. They were called to a life-on-life relationship, to follow him literally every day in every event, even sleeping in the same quarters and, and going and doing the same things together. In the Great Commission, Jesus tells them to then go out and make more disciples of all the nations. In the book of Acts, we see that this launches, uh, the Great Commission is launched by the foundation of the church. And we see over and over this phrase in the book of Acts, the number of disciples increased. So, being called a disciple isn't just limited to the 12 that Jesus calls in the Gospels. But a disciple is any devoted follower, pupil, learner of Christ. In fact, in Acts chapter 11, we see the term disciple and Christian are synonymous. So, to be a Christian is to be a disciple, a follower of Christ. We don't separate the two. You don't associate as a Christian, yet not follow Jesus. To be a Christian is to be a disciple, a Christ follower. And remember what that means. That means that if we're a Christian, we know our master, we follow our master, we learn from our master, and we imitate our master. We begin to walk in his footsteps. Jesus says it this way in Matthew 10. It is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. There's going to be some replication involved, some following, some imitation. And I want to ask you with that in mind, are you truly a disciple of Jesus Christ? Are you bound to Him by faith? Are you following Him with your life? Are you growing to look more like Him, being conformed into His image, imitating Him? 
there is this thought today, especially in American evangelicalism, that one can call themselves a Christian by association without the replication. People say things like, well, I'm a Christian, but you know, I just don't do that whole church thing. Or I'm a Christian, I'm just not a practicing Christian. Or I'm not a serious Christian like so-and-so. Or they associate as a Christian because of their politics, because of their morals, their values, or because of their heritage. They were raised as a Christian. Or maybe they became a Christian when they married a Christian. So they call themselves a Christian. The Bible speaks nothing of this kind of pseudo-Christianity. No such thing. As a Christian by association, without being a true disciple, a follower of Jesus Christ. You are either following Jesus or you're not. You're either a disciple or you're not. You can't call Jesus your master and not follow him with your life. So I ask you again, are you truly a disciple of Jesus Christ? Does your life reflect a true relationship with him? The call to discipleship, what we're going to see in this passage is a call to leave the old self behind and follow Jesus. We also see in this passage that the commission, the mission, is inextricably connected to the call. We are not called into an association. We are called into service. Again, it's not just being content with being called a Christian, sitting on your hands and waiting for the next bus to heaven. But being called a Christian, being called into discipleship, results in a changed life and results in missional behavior. That's what we see as Jesus calls these first disciples in Matthew chapter 4. These are the king's men. The king's men. So let's look at these men. Let's look and see what we can learn about these disciples that Jesus calls in this passage. Point number one, we see that they are four fishermen. Four fishermen. Remember, Jesus is in Capernaum. He is walking by the Sea of Galilee. And he sees two brothers. Simon, who's called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were Fishermen. Now go to verse 21. Going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets. Fishermen as well, he called out to them. So two sets of brothers. Three of these, by the way, would become part of the inner circle, Jesus' closest disciples. We have uh, Peter, John, and James. Uh, we also know that Jesus had met these men before. Remember, there's a year that has taken place before this official call of the disciples. He met uh, Andrew and, I believe, John uh, with John the Baptist, introduced to them, or introduced to him by John the Baptist. 
And they left their discipleship with John the Baptist to follow Jesus when John said, that's the Lamb of God that's going to take away the sins of the world. They followed Jesus after that for some time. We know they spent at least a day with him. And then Andrew goes and finds his brother, Peter. He says, Peter, we have found the Messiah. And, and so Andrew drags Peter to see Jesus, and that is where Jesus gives Peter, or sorry, previously Simon, the name Cephas, or Peter, which means rock. This is all happens before this official event and this official calling. At some point, they ended up going back to Capernaum and fishing. So why does Jesus choose these four fishermen? What's so special about these individuals? Let's look at them specifically. What do we know about them? other than the fact that they are blue-collar fishermen. First, Andrew, the bringer. Not much is said about Andrew, the disciple. He's quiet, unlike his brother. I imagine it was difficult living in the shadow of a bombastic personality like Peter. But Andrew, even despite his quietness, becomes very useful to the king. We see in the gospel stories, whenever we see Andrew, we see him bringing someone to Jesus. Andrew brought his brother to meet Jesus in John chapter 1. Andrew brought the boy with the five barley loaves and the two fish to Jesus in John 6. Finally, Andrew brings the Greeks in to see Jesus in John chapter 12. See, even though he's quiet, Andrew understands his mission well. He may not be the most outspoken and charismatic leader, but he became an influencer for Christ. Church history tells us that Andrew was crucified on an X-shaped cross, and the cross was placed on the side of the road leading into Jerusalem for all to see. Tradition tells us that Andrew hung on that cross and shared the gospel with everyone who walked by. Andrew used his very last breaths to bring people to Jesus. So this quiet, reserved personality is used to great effect for the king in his service. The next, or Andrew's brother, is Peter, the leader. Peter is the disciple we know most about because he was the loudmouth. <laughs> he establishes himself as the leader of the group, often stepping up to speak on the group's behalf, and we know his mouth got him into trouble several times. When he tried to stop Jesus from going to the cross in Matthew 16, he was rebuked. When he told Jesus he would never deny him, and he did three times, Matthew 26. And even at the very end of Jesus' life here on earth, before he ascends, he has this intimate moment with Peter in John 21, and Jesus restores him and recommissions him as they walk along the shore, and Peter almost ruins the moment by turning around, pointing to John and saying, yeah, Lord, what about him? Jesus says, don't worry about him. You follow me. When we watch Peter, we often think, Peter, just stop talking. Be quiet. Yet, he's the one who confesses that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. He is the rock Jesus chooses to build His church upon. This unlearned fisherman who has trouble writing. 
this brash leader whose mouth got him into a lot of trouble, he launched the church in Acts chapter 2. His sermon at Pentecost resulted in thousands of people believing in Jesus Christ. The quiet one and the loud one. Andrew and Peter, polar opposite siblings, become useful in the king's service. Let's look at the third, James the Passionate. James the Passionate, we believe this to be the older son of Zebedee. He's listed first in most lists. And Jesus calls this pair the sons of thunder. Probably because of their passion and zeal. And their passion seems to be directed towards conflict and ambition. We could assume that these brothers saw their fair share of scuffles and fights, maybe out on the lake. James and his brother jockey for a position of power next to Christ in his kingdom, and that upsets the other disciples. They became very angry. And in Luke chapter 9, this is one of my favorite accounts, just to see their passion. Jesus is rejected by a Samaritan village. They turn Jesus away. And this is James and John's solution to that. They say, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? Let's burn this place to the ground. Passionate, zealous. We know church history tells us in the Scriptures that James was the first disciple martyred in Acts chapter 12, killed by Herod with a sword. It's interesting to note that his execution particularly pleased the Jews. No doubt James was a thorn in their side as he preached Christ, the truth of Christ, unabashedly. His martyrdom leads to the further expansion of the church and the progress of the mission. The king somehow bridled James's passion and directed it for his service. Lastly, John the Loyalist. John the Loyalist. He's the second son of thunder. He's also a passionate individual. He's right there with his brother trying to call fire from heaven down to consume the Samaritan village. He's often, though, marked as the disciple of love. I could have maybe wrote John the, the lover because he writes often of love. He identified himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved. Love is a major and central theme of his gospel and his epistles. There's also this really intimate scene of John reclining at the table with his head on Christ's chest in John 13. I chose to not use that word, lover, because unfortunately, our world has so romanticized and even sexualized love to kind of paint John in a a perverse tone, if you will. When you hear John is the disciple of love, you might think of a romantic comedy or a Hallmark movie. That's not John's love. John's love was not soft, gushy. It was a loyal love. John was loyal. Loyal in his love to the Lord Jesus. There's not a greater manifestation of this than at Golgotha. In the king's darkest hour, when Christ hung on a cross, 
we see only one disciple left at his side. And who was it? It was John, the disciple whom Jesus loved. He was loyal. He was devoted to his master, his king. So the king, we see, took someone who was ready to burn down a city, redirected his passion to show loyal and sacrificial love in the church. So we see these four men, and we don't see anything particularly spectacular about them when Jesus called them. In fact, we see a lot of glaring weaknesses and vulnerabilities in these men. They were relatable, weren't they? I mean, how many of us would admit, you know, we've put our foots in our mouths just like Peter? How many of us might hide in the shadows because we're more quiet or reserved like Andrew? How many of us struggle to bridle our ambitions and passions like the sons of thunder? How many of us have had the thought, man, I wish God would just judge this place? Send the fire from heaven, Lord. How many of us have ordinary jobs? Just means to an end, working to make ends meet. Nothing extraordinary, just doing what we can to provide for our families. Here are the four disciples. What did God see in these four men? What did... What does God see in us? Well, He sees people that He sets His love upon. He chooses these men not because of anything worthy or great in and of themselves, but simply because He chose to love them, to disciple them. His love is unconditional. Jesus sees sinners who need a Savior. Lost sheep who need a shepherd. Floundering fish who need to be caught and put to use. He sees ordinary men and women like you and me that he can commission and empower despite our weaknesses to serve in his kingdom and to advance his gospel. And by the way, because we're ordinary, because we're sinful, because we're fallible, God gets all the glory for it. I think of 1 Corinthians 1.27, it's on your outline. God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of Him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in who? the Lord. I think it's so cool to see that the king did not search for rabbis, did not look for experts in the law, aristocrats, high-ranking officials to make up his squad. He chose blue-collar, everyday, common, even the unlearned, the quiet, the reserved, the loud and short-tempered, the passionate and zealous, Sinners to commission in his service. He calls all kinds of people to discipleship of different shapes, sizes, and backgrounds. And that's good news for us, the everyday, the quote-unquote ordinary, to be called by the king. 
So there's just a little bit of background on these four men, and we'll, we'll see their lives develop further in the gospel. But point number two, let's look at the call and commission of discipleship. Luke's parallel account includes a little bit more detail. Luke includes this miracle that takes place uh, before Jesus calls the men to follow him. Um, you can look at uh, the, the Gospel of Luke for that full account. There, it adds a little bit of context to this event. But Matthew doesn't include the miracle. Matthew just emphasizes the call and the response, which I think is helpful for us. It's telling on what Matthew wants us to learn, what Matthew wants us to see in this account. He wants us to see what it means to be called into discipleship. What does it mean to be a true disciple? What does that look like? And we'll see what it looks like by looking at the call and watching the response of these men, okay? So the call of discipleship is very simple and straightforward. Here it is, follow me, follow me. Now that seems simple, doesn't it? But we might be confused as to what that really means, especially today in the day of social media. What does it mean to follow someone? Well, it means that occasionally you'll browse their social media page, right? For things that might interest you. What does it mean to follow someone? Well, it means to, to subscribe to their content. What did it mean to follow someone in this time, though? What does it mean when Jesus says, follow me? Does he mean, hey, pay attention to the news being spread around about me? You know, follow my content. Come to the synagogue and listen to me teach. No, what does Jesus mean when he says, follow me? These four men knew exactly what he meant. And we see what we see that they knew that by their response. Follow me was a call to discipleship. It was a call to be a devoted pupil, follower, and learner. They were being asked in that simple command to leave their former life and take up the new life of a disciple of Jesus Christ. That's what it means when Jesus says, follow me. Leave your old life behind and become my disciple. Follow me. And I want us to see here that the commission is part of the call. Jesus says, follow me, in verse 19, and included with that, I will make you fishers of men. Jesus calls them into discipleship, and then he hands them a syllabus and says, this is what you're going to be learning, and this is who you will become. He shows them his cards right away. I'm going to make you fishers of men. And he uses an analogy that they're familiar with. They're fishermen. So Jesus says, hey, you're going to continue to be fishermen, but you're not going to be fishing tilapia. You're going to be fishing people. Now, it might be a little unclear. That might be strange-sounding to these disciples. And we learn as we go through the gospel what it truly means to be fishers of men, to make more disciples, to multiply. We know that that is what Jesus gets to in the Great Commission. That's how they're going to be fishing men. They're going to be sharing the gospel and making more disciples of Jesus Christ. But suffice it to say at this point, the disciples knew this that their call to discipleship included a mission. It included a purpose of service 
to the king. They were given both a new name and a new purpose. The king calls his people into service, not onto the couch. We have work to do as we're called to be disciples. It's part of our training, and it will result in us imitating him and doing just as he did. I was watching a scene from a a funny sitcom, and the little scene in the, the story was that the guy had gotten this job. He had interviewed for the job, and he was so excited to get the job and to, to have a job. He had his briefcase with him. The, the guy who interviewed him showed him his new office. He went in there. He had his own desk. He had his own lamp. He had his own clock on the wall, and he was so excited about all these trinkets that he got by having this job. He sits down with his briefcase. He opens it up, puts papers on the desk. He folds his hand, and then he looks at the clock. It's 9 a.m. And then the, key, the scene cuts, and the clock now is at 5 p.m. He hasn't done a thing. He's just sitting there watching the time pass. And he goes, okay, 5 p.m., gets up, shuts his briefcase, puts all his papers in, and walks out of the office. It's so ridiculous. You know, he's just content with having the job, but not doing any work. You know what? So many Christians view Christianity that way. I'm just content to be associated with Christianity. I'm content being called a Christian, wearing the Christian name tag. But they're not living like one. They're not doing anything. They're not following Christ or advancing His mission or participating at at all. I wonder, I wonder, when Jesus called you to follow Him, do you think His expectation is that you would just attend a few Sunday services? That you would listen and sing a few songs? That you would listen to a few sermons? Or do you think there's a little more to discipleship than that? There is. It's a whole life endeavor to follow Christ, to imitate Him, to do as He did. The call cannot be separated from the commission, the purpose. And the disciples' response to the call makes this expectation even clearer. What did the disciples do when Jesus called them to follow Him? Look at verses 20 and 22. This is the right response of discipleship. Immediately, verse 20, they left their nets and followed Him. Immediately, verse 22, they left the boat and their father and they followed Him. We notice from their response that the right response to the call of discipleship involves both leaving and following. You're leaving something or someone behind and you're following Jesus. Now let's look first at leaving. This is the difficult part. This is the rub for many people. Peter and Andrew left what? Their nets. In verse 20, James and John left what? Their boat and their father. What do we see these men leaving? They're leaving behind their former life, their former occupation. In James and John's case, they're leaving them behind family for this new endeavor. You need to know, Christian, or non-Christian, there is always a cost to following Jesus. Always. 
Not in the sense that you have to pay something or earn discipleship. No, 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 that's not what I mean. But you will be asked to leave something or someone behind. You will. You'll be asked to give something up. Specifically, the idols and the sins of your formal life. And maybe more. Jesus talks about this concept, the cost of discipleship in so many other places. In Matthew chapter 8, leave the dead to bury their own dead, follow me, he tells a man. Matthew, when he calls Matthew out of the tax booth, Matthew gets up and leaves that occupation. Jesus said in Matthew 16, if anyone come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. He says later, whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. There is always a cost to follow Jesus. You will always be asked to leave something, someone behind. One of the clearest illustrations of this is Jesus' interaction with the rich young ruler. The rich young ruler was a man of religious status and wealth. He approaches Jesus with an interest in eternal life, it seems. Jesus has this great exchange with him. A lot we can learn in that. But I want to show the, the end point of the story. The rich young ruler thinks he's good. He abides by all the religious laws. He, he likely attends the synagogue, does all these good things, might even give generously. But Jesus sees the idol in his heart. And Jesus says this in verse 21, If you would be perfect, go sell what you possess, give it to the poor, you'll have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. Jesus says one thing you still lack is that little idol in your heart. It's your wealth, it's your riches, those comforts, those idols that you trust and you hold to and you cling so preciously, you're going to have to give that up. And the Lord does the same thing in our lives, in different ways. Not all of us have the, the idol of wealth and riches that we're clinging so closely to, like the rich young ruler. But you know in your own heart other comforts, other idols, other pursuits, other things that you worship that you cling so closely to. The Lord Jesus Christ, when He calls you to follow Him, calls you to give that up, to leave it behind, to surrender it. To follow Christ. The cost is different for each person, but every single one of us has a cost. For the disciples, they were called to give up their former occupation. For others, it might cost family relationships. I've known several students who were rejected, as I was a youth pastor, they were rejected by their family for embracing the Christian religion. They had to leave their fathers and mothers, literally. Some are asked to surrender idols, like the rich young ruler. Everyone is asked to leave their pride, to leave the sinful comforts, to, lead, to leave sinful pleasures, sinful habits, to repent, to turn from sin and follow Jesus. The cost might be different for each person. Maybe the cost for you is to not sell your house and live on the mission field in Africa. For some it is. For you it might not be. But you will be asked to let go of something can't have your idol in a relationship with Christ. 
There's no version of Christianity where that's possible. Jesus says it another way. He says, uh, you cannot only serve one master. You cannot serve God and wealth. So I ask you, you know in your heart what it is, but I ask you what it is. What did the Lord ask you, or what is He asking you now to leave behind when he, asks, when he calls you to follow Him? What do you need to leave? Or what did you need to leave? I know for me, it was sinful pleasures and selfish aspirations. It's living life for myself. I had to give that up when Jesus called me to discipleship. When He said, follow me. I had to give that up to follow Christ. What is it for you? What are those things that you hold on so tightly to? What is the cost for you? It costs everybody something. It might be different, but you will be asked to leave something, even maybe someone behind. Now, the right response in discipleship is not just leaving, but it's also following. Here's what's interesting. Each of us might be asked to leave something different, but who we're asked to follow is one and the same. The one we follow is who? Jesus Christ. He is, becomes our new master. A disciple follows Jesus. Again, this is not just a distant appreciation of Jesus. Like, oh, I like Jesus. I like to talk about Him on Sundays and learn about Him then. No, no. This is life-on-life discipleship. You follow Him with everything in your life. Every aspect of your life comes under new leadership, has a new direction. It's all for the Master. Now, before Christ, we served ourselves. I know I did. Everything was ultimately for me and what I thought was giving me pleasure and what was making me happy. Ultimately, we know from Ephesians 2, you're just a slave to your sinful desires. You're ultimately a slave of Satan. But think about the different aspects of your life. When you don't have Christ or you're, uh, you're not um, united with Him, you, uh, your home life, your school life, your work life, your family, your friends, it's all for you. It's all to serve the master of yours truly. The aim is to please yourself. You do what you want for your own glory. Now, when you follow Jesus, you leave behind the sinful idols of your past, the sinful desires, sinful habits, and now every aspect of your life is surrendered to Him. Home, work, social life, everything. Here's an illustration of that. Go back to the previous picture. I like to use this cabinet illustration. Some of us like to organize our life, you know, keep categories separate from one another. So you have church stuff in one drawer. You have family stuff in another drawer. You've got work stuff in that drawer, social stuff in that drawer, hobbies, friends, whatever. And this is how some of us categorize our life. Like these are the very things that are very important to us and we tend to separate them from one another. I like to keep all my church stuff on Sunday. I like to keep all my family stuff, you know, Monday to Saturday, five to nine. Work is... 5 a.m. to, you know, whatever, or 9 to 5, sorry, the other way. Social is everything in between. I think when we do this, we tend to separate. We could possibly 
remove Christ from a category of our life. Feeling like Jesus, Christ, my relationship with God, that's all in the church stuff category. That's for Sundays. And maybe an occasional growth group meeting on a Thursday. But everything else in my life is disconnected from Him. Jesus Christ doesn't affect my family. Jesus, Jesus Christ doesn't, isn't mentioned at work. No, no thought about Jesus when I'm engaging in those social activities, when I'm with my friends. And what we do is we separate Christ from all those categories. This is how our life ought to be lived. The next illustration. All of those categories under the lordship of Jesus Christ. That's what it means to be a disciple. Is that church stuff, family stuff, work stuff, social stuff is all unto your new master. It's all for Jesus and his glory. So absolutely, Jesus is front and center at church. And absolutely, Jesus is your ultimate boss at work. Absolutely, Jesus is at the center of your family. And he needs to be. Absolutely, Jesus is not removed from the game of golf on Saturday morning. Or from the video games or whatever else hobbies that you have. It needs to be unto the glory of Christ and for him. Every aspect of your life is surrendered to Jesus. That's what it means to be a disciple. And so I ask you, with this illustration on the stage, or on the screen, have you gone back to compartmentalizing your discipleship, giving Christ some categories of your life, but keeping them out of others? Or is everything that you do to the glory and for the service of the King? What compartments of your life Maybe you would add other compartments. What compartments of your life right now are not surrendered to King Jesus? What compartments are you keeping them out of right now? You know what it is for you. I'd encourage you to bring all things back into submission to Jesus Christ. That's what discipleship is. Every aspect of your life is for the glory of Christ, in service to the King. Um, honestly, when I see this illustration, I, I think about Tony. Um, Tony wasn't a perfect man. He's, he's not a, you know, an angel in that sense. Or, you know, we know that every one of us has flaws. But I think one of the things that Tony did really well was that even when he was at work, friends, family that he spent time with, he would always bring up Christ. Always bring up Christ. In fact, the last conversation I had with Tony was out in that hallway. And he was telling me about a friend from work that he was sharing the gospel with and also an old friend from his past that ran into some trouble and he was sharing the gospel with him. And he asked me, Morgan, pray for these friends because I've planted the seed. I've shared the gospel with him. I remember looking at Tony and saying, thank you, Tony, for being faithful to share Christ, whether he's at work or with an old friend, social life or work stuff. I think we could learn from his example and in every category of our life not remove Christ, but prove ourselves to be disciples who really follow him and imitate him in every area. So let me ask you again, what compartments of your life are not surrendered to King Jesus? We see these disciples, they forsook Everything and their whole life was given to Christ. What part of your life is not? 
what part of your life is not. Maybe there are areas of your life you need to repent and turn from separating that from discipleship and and bring that aspect of your life, whether it's work, whether it's family, into surrender and service to your new master. Maybe some of you have not yet responded to the actual call of discipleship. You think you're a Christian because you associate with them, but when you see this, you, you realize, I'm not really a Christian. I'm not really following Jesus and imitating his example. I want to encourage you today to repent from your sin, turn from your idols, sinful passions, habits, and surrender everything to Jesus. Become a true disciple, a follower of Christ. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, help us, Lord. We can uh, easily compartmentalize our lives and, and God, in, in ways, keep you out of certain areas. Whether it's a sinful passion that's being fulfilled in that area or we keep you out because we somehow think that we can do that, we can do that thing by ourselves, that we don't need you, Lord. Help us to not have that perspective, God. Remind us that being a disciple, a follower of Jesus Christ is whole life surrender to Him. Every aspect of our life, whether it's home, work, social, it's all for Him. It's all for the glory of our Master in imitating our Master, sharing the good news of our Master wherever we're at. Help us, Lord, in that endeavor. We can be so easily distracted. Lord, be with, be with us as we seek to be missional people. That is, mission, people who carry out the mission of making disciples. Help us to all participate and engage in that, to be motivated to do that, Lord, as that's definitely a part of our call. God, we need your strength. We need your power. We need to depend upon you as we seek to obey you. Help us, Lord. Give us that vision. Give us that desire. Lord, help us to live it out in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.